Well, thank you, uh, Richard, for the very kind introduction and for the uh, lovely award. I'm going to um, figure out how I'm going to get that home. <laughs> when Richard invited me to speak uh, on October 7th, I assumed he would wanted me to talk about Chesterton's poem, Lepanto. And he said, no, no. <laughs> He said, we want you to talk about, I don't remember what he wanted me to talk about, but, I, uh, but I'm here and I'm going to say something in spite, of, uh, in spite of not knowing what it is. Before I talk about truth, let's talk a little bit about lying. A lie is a proud thing. It means that we think that we uh, are better than the truth. It's a humble act to acknowledge that the truth is bigger than we are. Honesty and humility go together. G.K. Chesterton was a tower of humility and he was a, a mountain of honesty. And that is why he is so very appealing, because of his humility and his honesty. And also because of his humor. Honesty and humility and humor also all go together very well. It's why uh, he could say things like, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and to love our enemies, generally because they're the same person. <laughs> Or why he could say that um, he was the politest man in all of England because he could stand up on a bus and offer his seat to three women at one time. <laughs> Chesterton says, honesty is never solemn. Only hypocrisy can be that. Honesty always laughs because things are so laughable. It's absolutely useless and absurd to tell a man that he must not joke about sacred subjects because there are no subjects that are not sacred subjects. There are no subjects that are not sacred subjects. He says, I think we can just, on any subject, I don't think we may just on any occasion. Um, there are times, you know, when a corpse can be funny if you're trying to get it off the stage or something, you know? Um, but, but there are times when a corpse obviously is not funny. But everything is sacred. That's one of Chester's great mystical insights. Every subject is a sacred subject. And that's why um, humor has to apply, because humor doesn't apply to non-sacred subjects only, if everything is sacred, all right? Now, this writer Chesterton, if you don't know anything about him, <laughs> what are you doing here? Uh, you, actually, you came to the right place tonight. Uh, Eli, make, make a, there's Eli over there. He'll sell you a Chesterton book tonight. He'll get you off on the, the right direction. He'll take care of the rest of your life. 
You can also join the Chesterton Society, get the best magazine in the world, Gilbert Magazine. That can all happen tonight. And, you know, he, he wrote some very important foundational books uh, for our time. His book, Orthodoxy, is just one of the most refreshing and original explanations of the Christian faith and how he came to embrace it. His book, The Everlasting Man, is all of history compressed between two covers of a book, explained that the, everything that led up to Christ clearly led up to Christ and everything that happened after Christ has no possible explanation unless Jesus was who he said he was. He couldn't have been anybody else. It's a book that had a very profound influence on a young atheist named C.S. Lewis, who said that when he read The Everlasting Man, it was a turning point in his life. He said, a young atheist who's serious about his beliefs cannot be too careful about what he reads. And then he wrote a great book on St. Francis of Assisi and, and one on St. Thomas Aquinas. And I don't know any other writer who could completely grasp the essence of two such different saints as G.K. Chesterton. And at Chesterton's Requiem Mass, Monsignor Ronald Knox said he could imagine Chesterton being escorted into heaven with Francis on one side and Thomas on the other, with Francis saying, with me, he loved the poor, and Thomas saying, with me, he loved the truth. But I'm not gonna rehash all that stuff that you can read. <laughs> I wanna tell you some things that Chesterton said that you have not read and have never heard. Because Chesterton's books, and he wrote 100 books, his books are only a fraction of what he wrote. He was primarily a newspaper man. He was a, a journalist who wrote literary essays for newspapers and magazines on both sides of the Atlantic. He wrote more than 5,000 essays. I want you to go home tonight and write an essay, okay? <laughs> because that's what you were gonna do anyway. And then tomorrow, write another essay. And that will be two essays. <laughs> and if you go on writing one essay a day without taking Sundays off, at the end of 15 years, you will have written 5,000 essays. And then you can start in on your mystery stories about that priest. <laughs> and you can start in on that book on Thomas Aquinas that you've always wanted to write. And then you can write about 3,000 poems after that. How did he do it? Simple. He could write two essays at one time. He could write two essays at one time. Did you hear what I just said? He, he could write one out longhand and dictate an entirely different essay to his secretary at the same time. So you see, that would cut your writing time in half. <laughs> Pretty soon, you can start working just one day a week. 
like a priest. <laughs> and all good stuff, too. One of the most quotable writers in the English language. The man who said a Christian ideal can't, has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. And who said truth must be stranger than fiction because we've made fiction to suit ourselves. And uh, if there were no God, there would be no atheists. Think it out. It's there. Put it on a bumper sticker. See how people react. And angels fly because they can take themselves lightly. You've also heard the line, if a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing badly. Yeah, that's Chesterton. We're going to get to that one. But the point is, I'm going to give you some stuff tonight that is, these are all things that Chesterton said either in speeches or in interviews when he came to America. He, he took, he made two trips to America, one in 1921 and the other in 1930 and 31. Uh, in 21 was the year before he was received into the Catholic Church. And in 1930, uh, he, he was uh, a profound uh, um, spokesman for the Catholic Church. That's where he was invited to be a uh, guest lecturer at the University of Notre Dame. But... Uh, he, he came to America and was very, very well treated. Everywhere he went, it was front page news. His speeches were, were covered on the front page of every place he went. And he was just interviewed uh, all the time. So a lot of these great Chesterton quotes are for, were, were only in interviews in newspaper articles. One of the great pleasures of the work I get to do is going back and, and finding all that stuff. I mean, it's, it's easy to read one of his books, but... Uh, Digging through old newspaper archives, that's what it gets. That's buried treasure. So uh, the talks that he gave, he, he, he gave one talk called The Ignorance of the Educated. And he gave it several times. And according to all the different accounts I've read of that talk, he must have, it must have been a different talk every time he gave it. Um, or they just picked out different lines from it. But when he was in Boston, he said, being educated means reading the newspapers. Being properly educated means not believing the newspapers after we've read them. <laughs> in Washington, D.C., he said, I personally think that most of our theories are false and our use of them always pedantic and often hypocritical. In Chicago, in same speech, uh, the same title of the speech, he said, we always reform or ridicule not the customs of the remote past, but the new customs of the day before yesterday, which are just beginning to grow old. This is true of furniture and parents. <laughs> and of course, I, I referred to the line, a thing worth doing is worth doing badly. In Boston, he said, the world is not so anxious to do things worth doing as to do things not worth doing and do them very well. That's the modern world. We, we, pay, we pay all this effort and energy to do things very not worth doing and to do them very well. He, at that time, was referring to advertising. Think about 
you think about those really great television commercials and how worthless they are, but how well produced. And then he talked about the loss of wonder. One of his great lines from his uh, book, Tremendous Trifles, is the world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. He said in 1921 in, in the Northeast, he said, something is lost by almost all the technical accomplishments we gain. Something is lost by almost all the technical accomplishments we gain. The world doesn't appreciate one thing because it has a million. If only like children, you could keep the world in the nursery for six days and let it free on the seventh, it would be almost an earthly paradise on that day. Instead, it succeeds in being more or less bored during the whole seven. When I was a child, a visit to the pantomime was a great event. That visit, visit opened for us the gate to fairyland. But today, the children go to see five or six different sorts of cinema. They begin to compare the merits of one with the another. They begin to criticize, and lo, the gate to fairyland is closed. When he came to America, all the rage was Sigmund Freud and the rise of psychoanalysis. He was the first one to point out that there was a correlation in the rise of psychoanalysis and the incidence of divorce. Because he said psychoanalysis is simply the confessional without absolution. He says this new game of psychoanalysis deals with a part of ourselves beyond our control and creates a certain amount of irresponsibility. The general theory is that it is exceedingly dangerous to suppress any impulse. The immoral potentiality of this is less important than the irrational potentiality. It is liable to cross the line and become a revolt against reason. Think about that. He saw psychoanalysis, the dredging up of the subconscious and the unconscious as an attack on personal responsibility, that we would blame our actions on things that we can't control. Think of how that has taken away personal responsibility for our actions. Think of the result of that, how he says it's not only going to be an immoral potentiality, but an irrational potentiality, that we will start acting against reason itself because we can't control ourselves. We'll blame our actions on things that we cannot control. And of course, with Freud, everything was about sex. And Chesterton saw that the next great heresy, he said in 1926, will be an attack on morality, especially on sexual morality. The madness of tomorrow is not in Moscow, but much more in Manhattan. He said you can never take the tragic element out of sex. That was an amazing thing to say in America in 1921. 
you can never take the tragic element out of sex. It's an amazing thing to say today. No one thinks about that, that there's this tragic element because it's this enormous and eternal struggle and it belongs only in one place, in marriage. When Chesterton came to America and found out that couples could be divorced for incompatibility, he said they should all be divorced. <laughs> because men and women as such are incompatible. He says marriage is a duel to the death. You can't talk about successful marriages. He says, no one's ever survived marriage. <laughs> you cannot take the tragic element out of sex. And, uh, and that, that line about psychoanalysis and, and the confessional, Chesterton says um, that that's, that is really going to be the cure it rather, you know, what, what, what psychoanalysis does is try to say it's you, that your sins are not sins, therefore you don't need forgiveness. What Chesterton is saying that, yeah, you need, to, you need to be forgiven, but you need to admit that you're sinful. When he was asked why he became Catholic, he said, to get rid of my sins. Only the Catholic Church can do that. So when a man walks out of the confessional, he's five minutes old. And his whole life has just started over again. When he was asked about England when he was in America, he said, England is suffering chiefly from muddle-headedness, which is the result of abandoning all religion. Obviously, what he said about England is true of the U.S. Suffering from a muddled-headedness that is the result of abandoning all religion. Now, I have to say, this, this podium's really weird. I feel like half of me is in a display case. <laughs> just nothing to hide up here. It's just, yeah, I know. It's, it's bad enough being recorded, but uh, being seen and recorded is terrible. So Chesterton in 1921 came to Oklahoma. Oh yeah. He went to that other city, yeah, it was <clears throat> your fault for not inviting him, but he was in, uh, in Oklahoma City, gave a talk there called The Ignorance of the Educated. <laughs> and he said, the ignorance of the educated is just a lack of common sense. That was reported in the Daily Oklahoman. Where's Ardmore? What? Southwest. Southwest? How close is it to Oklahoma City? It's in between Oklahoma City and Dallas. Okay. Well, he, he went to Ardmore because there was a famous murder trial going on there. The Hammond murder trial. A U.S. Senator, Luke, Jake, Jake Hammond, had been shot to death by a young woman that he'd seduced. And he went and attended the murder trial. And she was acquitted. 
And Chesterton made the national news when he was asked about it. He said that in England she would have been hanged. But because of that, he would have much preferred that she had been murdered by the millionaire senator so that he could have been hanged. But plus it would have been a good murder mystery. You know, who, who killed the young woman? It was the, it was the senator. I mean, that's a great murder mystery, right? But he said it's, it's distressing to contemplate how few politicians are hanged. And he said, he says, it was a mistake to do away, to do away with the duel because politicians were sometimes killed in them. And see, since you keep bringing up politics, um, he said in New York, a world state would quite likely be the worst governed the mind of man can conceive. It's hard enough to get representatives to represent uh, when they are right here, where we can see them and control them. How can we control them if they're far off? He said you should always keep your politician close enough to kick him. <laughs> he truly believed in democracy, which is not the right to vote, but the right to rule yourself. And that's something different. It's self-government. And self-government doesn't mean doing whatever you want. It means controlling yourself. Governing yourself is self-control. It's one of the Christian virtues, self-control. But it also means freedom. That's what freedom is, self-government, self-control. It's not being ruled by compulsion, uh, and, and being told what to do. He, he really believed that the majority of people were sane. It was usually the, the minority that was ruling us that was not sane. The foundation of political liberty, he said, in America, is spiritual liberty. The sense that a man is an artist and a creator, that is the real view of the future, which a healthy philosophy ought to restore to mankind. The future, is a thing which we create out of ourselves as a poet creates a poem. Again, he's talking about personal responsibility. Freedom means doing things for ourselves. That's the kind of society he wanted to see, not where we let someone else do things for us, including other people rule us. Chesterton says it's a sign of decadence when we hire someone to fight for us, when we hire someone to rule us, and when we hire someone to amuse us. When we can't do any of those things for ourselves, we are in a state of decay. Doing things for ourselves. That's really the basis of Chesterton's uh, economic and social idea, which he called distributism, which is a difficult and cumbersome term. So the Chesterton Society has uh, done away with that term. We now call it uh, localism. The idea of keeping things local and keeping them under your control. He says, the ordinary opinion of a vast number of poor, hardworking men on any matter concerning their own lives would be the most valuable opinion which it would be humanly possible to get on that subject. But is, 
but the difficulty is to get that opinion. The men are too hardworking to be politicians, too poor to exercise power. So the democracy is run according to the pretensions of the educated who are incapable of seeing things as they are and who follow the intellectual fads of the moment. The main problem with the educated, they follow the educational fads of the moment. And this is what Chester was always fighting against. He said, we ought to teach the oldest things to the youngest children. The problem in our schools today, he said, is that children are subjected to educational theories that are younger than they are. <laughs> we are basically experimenting on our children. And that's why he was advocating a return to classical education a hundred years ago. One of the titles of a talk he gave in America was called Literature as Luggage where he asked the classic question, what book would you take, would you want to have on a desert island? What's the book you'd want to have? He said, when most, he answered the question, well, obviously the, the, the book I'd want is, is Thomas's Guide to Practical Shipbuilding. But, <laughs> but the, but the, 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 most people, when they answer the question, they say, well, the Bible or Shakespeare. And he said, that, that's a good answer. And in most cases, he said, they, this would be the first time they'd ever read the Bible or Shakespeare, <laughs> which is why it is a good answer. But when push came to shove, he said the book he, he would really want to have is Pickwick Papers by Charles Dickens. I got one good laugh back there. That's great. <laughs> Chesterton's favorite author was Charles Dickens. And Pickwick Papers was a book that he could just get lost in. And, uh, and why did he like Dickens so much? Because Dickens was a writer of hope. He represents hope. He, he, he sees the good in humanity. And uh, he sees the redemptive qualities that are there in every person. And so uh, he, Chesterton embraces that same sense of hope. He's got a great line in the Charles Dickens book that um, is a great line. I can't remember what it is. All right. Uh, but in talk about classics, in one of his speeches in New York, this was on the ignorance of, edu of the educate, he says, Everyone mentions Socrates as a man who dies because he was a bold exponent of new truths. But if you look closer, you will see that something else is so. Socrates lived in a world of sophists. And there were hundreds and hundreds of men proving that there was no God, no conscience. There were multitudes of anarchists around Socrates. He was the conservative who subdued them. He turned, he turned sophistry against the sophists. Socrates is remembered. The rest are forgotten. And that's why we still read Plato with great benefit. We can still open up the classics with great benefit because it's timeless truths that they express. 
The best thing to take with you to that desert island would be just a couple of shelves of all the required reading at Chesterton Academy. <laughs> and then you'd get, you'd get your Shakespeare and your, uh, your Bible, you'd get, you'd get some Charles Dickens, you'd get Socrates and Plato, you'd get Aristotle, and you'd also get Dante. And uh, I'd like to take some questions right now, but I'll close with, with this quote about Dante. Chesterton says, it's not always wrong to go like Dante down to the lowest promontory and look down on hell. It's when you look up at hell that a serious miscalculation has probably been made. <laughs> Thank you very much. The Eastern Oklahoma Catholic Podcast is brought to you by the Office of Communications at the Diocese of Tulsa and Eastern Oklahoma.